What's up guys, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. Before I kick off with my usual introduction to this week's guest, I just want to quickly mention I woke up this morning to hear the sad news that Shinzo Abe, the former Prime Minister of Japan, has been assassinated essentially, shot and killed by somebody this morning. And um, it's, uh, it's pretty shocking what a head of state or a former head of state gets taken out like that. So just wanted to kind of mention that that is what I read. That is where we are in terms of the, the, the news cycle and things like that. My guest this week, um, yes, it's going to be a guest as opposed to me telling you my own insights. I'm bringing a construction and design team professional uh, in for this week's conversation, and that is a chap by the name Paul Hemming. Now, Paul is based in the UK, and he has started his own construction technology firm called C-Link. Now, what is interesting about construction? Normally, as you know, this podcast, I really focus on real estate, property investment. I go into innovation and impact occasionally, but really it's kind of investment is the area that I'm most focused on. This week, I wanted to deviate slightly. I wanted to kind of look at the whole construction sector with Paul. Now, Paul has a construction-focused podcast called Own Your Build. And uh, and so Paul comes with some interesting insights of his own. And why do I want to do this? Well, frankly, I find construction fascinating. I, uh, I, I'm always really, really interested to walk around a construction site. I, I kind of grew up with my dad bringing me around construction sites when I was a young kid. And then as I kind of grew up and as I studied architecture, I used to really enjoy spending time on construction sites. And so it's been there all along. But what's also something that's important about construction is that construction, real estate investment, development, the whole thing is all very, very closely interlinked. Your success as an investor or uh, in particular as a developer is all completely linked to your ability to pull together a good professional team that can actually design a building, that can um, come up with a good construction methodology, process, all of that stuff. And the entire thing is interlinked and the success or failure of your project is very much tied to that team you put together. And then long after that building is finished, you lease it up, you sell it off, whatever you might do, that building stands there as a testament to you and your skills as a developer with vision and whether or not you stuck to quality materials, whether or not you made compromises, all of that becomes clear over the years that follow. And so it's always been something that, in terms of leaving a legacy behind, it's always been something that's interesting. And so technology, construction technology, innovation in the whole construction space, something that really does interest me. So one of the reasons why probably my favorite, uh, one of my favorite YouTube channels is the B1M. And so I certainly think you should, guys should go and check out Paul's uh, podcast. And I'm going to leave links and all that stuff in the show notes below. So look, without further ado, let me give you my conversation with Mr. Paul Hemming. You are listening to Behind the Facade, and I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. 
On this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Paul Hemming, welcome to the podcast. Tell us, where are you, where are you listening in? Where are you calling us in from today, Paul? I'm calling in from uh, North London, and thank you for having me on the show, Kevin. In my pleasure, uh, Paul. And as people will learn today, Paul has a podcast of his own, so he's a dab hand at this uh, interviewing. And, allegedly. Uh, allegedly, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Paul, I mean, the thing that I like to ask my audience first uh, and foremost is just to kind of kick it off, a little bit of context, a little bit of backstory. Tell us what uh, Paul Hemming does. I am um, 33, originally um, qualified as a quantity surveyor, not the sexiest of uh, qualifications, but that's what I, what I did. Um, and I spent 10 years in industry working on large projects, Battersea Power Station, 20th Entry Street, Walkie Talkie, uh, the Shards, so working for projects like that before I decided to... Uh, have a conversation with a friend in a pub um, six years ago where we were talking about kind of the problems that we were facing. Both of us were quantity surveyors. And he, to his credit, said, why don't we do something about it? Why don't we change it? Why don't we build a business that solves these problems? And I said, all right, let's do it. Because I probably had one too many drinks. And uh, so we set up C-Link. It's a software company which basically kind of automates a lot of what a quantity surveyor does improves the whole process and um yeah that's what that's what we do and uh, yeah things are coming along quite nicely and and paul just from the point of view of pardon my ignorance now about your product but uh would it be uk exclusive or you know i have listeners listening in from different parts of the world w- would it work in ireland or in the us or or other parts of the world so our product is kind of twofold part one is where we use software to replicate what a quantity surveyor does by reading drawings, breaking things into different packages, components, and assisting with the procurement process, so tendering contracts. And part two is we have like a vetted supply chain, kind of like a marketplace of subcontractors and suppliers who kind of tap in to to the system. So our system works across the world, um, for part one and then the supply chain as it stands is currently just based in in the uk and we're planning on growing it across europe focusing initially on the commonwealth where subcontracting and quantity surveying is a um, is very much a thing um, but yeah it will be replicable across the world in the future let's see so that's your roadmap for the next sort of couple of years uh, is, is kind of to try to grow it beyond the uk borders i guess yeah i mean we really want to um the way that we planned the business was to focus initially on a very small area. So we focused on London, perhaps not that small, but we focused on one specific area, tried to create a solution and a supply chain that solved that area. We've done that. We've now grown out into the Southeast, growing across the rest of England, then across the rest of the UK, then across probably Commonwealth um, and then Europe and beyond. Interesting. Well, we'll get into some more of that, but let's let's turn back the clock a little bit because um, 
you're 33, you're started as a quantity surveyor. I mean, let's, let's go back to, you know, you're in school and what attracted you to kind of get into the construction sector or become like <laughs> a, a design team professional? Um, I would say absolutely nothing to be, to be honest with you. I wanted to be a, uh, a journalist when I was, when I was younger. And in fact, um, I kind of wrote to every newspaper in the country saying, I don't want to go to university, give me a job. And all of them wrote back to me. Well, in fact, most of them didn't write back to me. The ones that did wrote back saying, go, go to, to university, college. we're not interested. Yeah, so um, I ended up thinking I would find a job that would um, get me a university for free and get me qualified for free. Ended up being uh, finding a job advert for trainee quantity surveyor my best mate told me do not do that job it will make you miserable for the rest of your life you're going to be counting you're going to be counting bricks i ignored him and i have to admit that when i first started doing it my number one it's not just counting bricks um but when i did first start doing it i did think i'm not sure if i could do this for the rest of my life but actually yeah yeah but actually it's um grew into a really interesting um job really interesting career and what I like most about construction even though I'm not actually physically doing it myself anymore is the fact that you do have that takeaway of something lasting in a city Mm. in a town wherever that you can put your name to I'm really fortunate to have been on some amazing projects like I said the Shard 20th Street Battersea Power Station where you walk past it and you think I was made a real impact there exactly Yeah. yeah Yeah, I got to say, I I relate very much to that because my background is architecture and uh, I became an architect and, you know, I started out not really knowing anything. But what hit me was I arrived into New York City on on a family holiday and we were staying in midtown Manhattan and like, you know, moving from Dublin, where the tallest building is like 14 floors to New York City where you're literally getting a sore <laughs> neck looking up at these towers. I mean, Can't help it though, can you? It, it's just incredible. And you're just standing there looking up going, my God, these buildings are so huge. And that was so impactful on me mm. that I came back from that holiday at 15, I think, or something like that. And just, right, I am going to be involved in some way. Oh, well, you know, it's funny. I didn't even know there were, you know, about architecture and all that. I just, I started drawing these, these skyscrapers. I, I was into, really? I liked, I liked drawing, you know, and I used to sit down on a, on a drawing board and like draw skyscrapers for, that I had seen in New York. And I started to measure them and like get the exact to scale height and stuff. And I'd compare, mm. you know, tiny little ones in Ireland with these huge big towers and the Empire stage and all that. And, uh, and I was, I kind of got obsessed and I started doing it for months and really? I can remember family members like coming in, uh, like aunties and uncles and stuff saying, God, you know, you're really good at this, Kevin, you should be an architect. And that's when it entered the mind is like, oh, what's architecture? And then it was explained to me that this is, you know, the guys that design the buildings and so on and so forth. You see, that's a far more charming story than me picking up a, uh, Newspaper advert and my best mate telling me, don't do that. You'd be miserable forever. You're doing, you were doing your dream. <laughs> well, it's all of it. Yeah. It's, it's funny, different things like uh, inspiration can kind of strike you in different ways. But um, in terms of just the, the next ste- steps, like I saw, I was looking at your, your LinkedIn, which is very impressive, by the way, 20,000 followers plus. But in terms of your 
your jobs, Alumet and Permastilista, uh, Permastilisa or whatever. Um, yeah. Those, I actually know Permastilisa because it, they, they did a building here in Dublin. Um, Dublin, yeah. And Quite a few, remember, right? Yeah, I can remember thinking, oh, wow, that the facade is absolutely like pristine. It's just beautiful. <laughs> and, um, and so clearly the facade technology and, and that kind of space, those two businesses, that was where you kind of were before you started your own business. Yeah. And, and is that where you got involved in the shard and things like that? It was the, the external. Yeah, kind of skin. that was always the, uh, the nice bit of, about what I did as well in that I always worked in building envelopes. So the, like you say, the pretty exterior, the glazing, everything. So actually when you are walking past the project or when I was walking past the project, I've been involved. You can very much see specifically what it was that you did. Yeah. Um, and that's the bit that looks nice as opposed to, you know, like the M and E or something. So that's always, uh, I guess, why even more. So I was. Uh, it's always you're always quite proud of walking past. It's these very, buildings. it's very tangible. I mean, an outside envelope, uh, you know, especially the the beautiful kind of glazed, you know, when it's super clean and stuff, it's really noticeable. I remember yeah. when I was studying architecture back in the '90s. Like I remember reading about, uh, learning about Norman Foster. <laughs> And Norman Foster did this building called the Willis Farber building in, um, I'm not sure what part of England it is, but he did it in the sixties and it was just this glass skin. And I mean, it's absolutely out of this world, like so different from everything else yeah. that you've ever seen. And that really made an impression. And since then, you know, it's, it's there, this kind of technology, external facades and things like that, they can be, really impressive and so going from being an employee working in a big firm um you know what were the what were the, what was the mindset i mean you met your mate and you had a chat and you thought let's go and do this i mean when you mm. walk away from you said you had a, a few drinks too many i mean <laughs> always jo jokes aside i mean um what was the next you know what was the next couple of weeks or months like before the actual business was set up because presumably you don't walk in the next day and say right i quit <laughs> there's a little bit of prep work that people like to do so that they're not jumping from a paying job into like you know zero absolutely tell us what what that process looked like well actually um believe it or not one of my old boss my old director very charming Irish chap from Dublin, actually. He, he right. gave me some uh, pretty great advice when I look at it in retrospect. He said to me, I kind of, I didn't run in the following day and, with my hangover and say, see you later, it's all done. But I kind of had been, I was all for the rat race at, at one point. I was climbing the ladder, but it kind of dawned on me it wasn't what I wanted to do. But anyway, after a few months of planning and realising this is something we're actually going to do, I kind of went in and said, I'm going to leave, this is why. And he kind of offered me a um, hybrid approach for a period of time where he kind of said, if you really want it to be a success, money is the thing that's going to drive it. One of the things that will pull you away from it is the fact that it's not making money instantly and you're going to want to feed yourself. Um, and so I kind of, for 12 months or so really kind of was in a transition between the two till we were in a position where we were really revenue generating could employ people and um that was without that i think there may have been a slightly different path that we'd have taken because naturally there is a pressure isn't that to bring money in and sustain yourself 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, it sounds like you had a really decent boss working like to, to give you that. Well, I suppose it's self-serving as well because he doesn't lose somebody who's yeah. on his team that he doesn't, you know, but at the end of the day, he could have, you know, I know a lot of people out there that have had pretty nasty bosses who are like, right out the door, you know, you will be Absolutely. escorted to the front <laughs> to the street, basically like, you know. Yeah, and, I think uh, it was mutually beneficial, but Absolutely. He was a, uh, there's a few of my other bosses. I had some pretty good bosses in the 10 years or so I was working. Maybe 50% of them would have been nice. 50% of them would have said all the best. See you later. Good luck. Sling your hook, you know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and um, in terms of Permis Delisa and Alumet and stuff, is there any linkage between them now and, and your business C-Link or is it they're much, much bigger businesses? And- Not really. No. I mean, um, what, we are trying to deliver with C-Link is effectively giving SMEs the scale of like the tier one contractors who have all these supply chain directors, QSs, et cetera. So we're trying to build a supply chain um, which meets their needs. We have done, or we're now actually starting to do pretty large schemes where your Alimets and your permastilesis could start to be involved, but that isn't our core business model. We haven't been able to utilize those relationships yet. Um, that, that we had um, so we're largely focused on the SME market to be honest with you because both of those particularly Permis Delisa are I think they're the biggest or the second biggest cladding contractor in the world so um, yeah. only the big stuff for them we haven't been offered the shard yet is what I'll say <laughs> um, and and just in terms of um, I mean the, the, the challenges that you face you, you mentioned the, the supply chain I mean obviously coming out of COVID now we've been facing some serious supply chain issues. Like how has that affected the business? Is it affecting the business? Is it, is it, is it an opportunity? What, how does it pan out? For I would you? say it's, it, it's, it's more an opportunity than anything. Naturally um, the supply chain, whoever you are and the impacts of what's happening at the moment is, is, is hurting everyone. Um, but what it is doing is um, making people, think even more in detail about the competitive tender process which is something which we're pushing something which i felt at my time in my career that wasn't something that i could always do because the tools weren't there for me to be able to speak to five of the perfect subcontractors um and go out to them professionally so now the fact that you have that um with scenic and the fact that people are looking to find ways to make sure they're getting the right value for money they're getting what the market um is actually at has probably brought us more of an opportunity than anything. But um, in terms of the wider industry, it's, there's no doubt it's been an absolute nightmare. I think material costs are 20% up um, year on year. So what it has meant is that some of our clients who are either typically developers, like end user clients or main contractors. So the developers would actually, have delays in planning through 2021, which then means by the time they get to the end of the year, the projects become almost unfeasible because the construction costs have gone up 15, 20%. And there's yeah. not a huge amount anyone can do to, to help you with that right now, um, other than making sure that you're getting a comp- competitive process. But um, challenge for the industry, for sure, as I'm sure you're well aware. Yeah, well, it's funny. I, this morning I was having a conversation with one of my uh, contractors uh subcontractors and they were telling me that they they're ordering in stainless steel um they're doing a project for us at the moment and 
they were saying that the pricing is five days, uh, like after five days, you have to get it repriced because the, that's the speed at which all of this we've stuff had, is. Yeah, we've had one of our um, suppliers, subcontractors say that now they're on 20, for steel specifically, 24 hours, which Jeez. is absolutely mental. But one of the um, largest steel mills is in Ukraine. I think it does yeah. X million tons a year and it's obviously been closed for seven months now. So that not only do we have all the problems from 2021, but that's now also impacting 22. Yeah. So it's real supply and issue. China is talking about, you know, you've got China doing these lockdowns because of COVID. There is zero mm. COVID policy and stuff. It's a real challenge. And we're building houses in uh, in Dublin at the moment, and we have 54 units under construction. And we had initially designed it to be built in timber frame. And uh, we couldn't get the timber frame on site for something like 16 weeks and so we had to in the like we had initially thought within two weeks we'd have the stuff on site and it it was like no no it's going to be 16 weeks because of various delays and so we had to pivot immediately into uh, construction uh, using masonry and brickwork and all that mm -hmm. and so we brought in all the the brickies and the uh, and the block layers and then those guys suddenly they started up in the prices and suddenly they were, you know, leaving to other jobs and stuff. And so there was a doubling of the labor cost uh, in that period of time. And so it's been a real mess. And the only thing that has saved us from actually going into a, a loss on the project is the fact that the, the, the market is pretty buoyant. So people are paying yeah. more. So what we initially thought we'd sell the property for is now higher. And so that's obviously balanced out those, those issues. How is the, uh, the labor market in Ireland, because that's another th untold story here in the UK, obviously, post-Brexit, is that not only have you got all of these issues with supply that everyone has, but we were already short on labor and yeah. skilled workforce before. It's even worse now. So brickies, particularly other trades as well, it's kind of sit back and name the, name the number almost. Name the price. Yeah, it is a little bit like that. I tell you what, we have this added problem in, well, it's probably, it's a separate problem to what you, I mean, obviously Brexit has really impacted the UK with mm. the fact that so many of the, the foreign guys that would have come in and work, they're no longer coming in because they don't know <clears throat> how long they can stay and all that. But in Ireland, what we have is we have this acute housing crisis and it, it is so acute that, I know uh, somebody, a friend of mine has a recruitment business and she has 70 Croatian laborers that are ready to move to Dublin in an instant to work on projects and stuff. Okay. And we can't get them accommodation. And really? that's what's actually making it impossible. And we've, we've agreed to take, I think, 210,000 Ukrainian refugees. And we already had no accommodation. And so where 210,000 Ukrainian refugees are going to go, nobody knows. So what the government have actually done and the local authorities, they've started renting rooms in hotels and bed and breakfasts and all this. And so up and down the country, you look for a hotel room, it's twice the price now because they've got most of their rooms pre-let out uh, to, to oh. the refugees. And so the few rooms that are left, they're able to like double their rates basically. And so even, no even like a little three-star hotel, like they're, they're charging 250 a night and things like this. You wow. Know? So, well, I was uh, planning on coming to Ireland this year, but I might stick a pin in that now. Well, if you are coming, you must uh, coordinate with me and we'll go and have it so that you can, uh, you can do some speaking or something like that to, yeah, to our audience. Sure. 
but but really you will need to go and plan carefully around your accommodation because it is okay. it's either super expensive or impossible to get or i'll have to stay at the family they'll, yeah. they'll have to put me up <laughs> yeah well that's okay do you have family living in ireland i've got um most of my uh the my dad's side of the family are irish so they're from wexford Kilmuckridge, blackwater that kind of area so okay oh. so i've Often would go there and uh, see them, but there's a few in Dublin as well. And I do love Dublin, I have to say. <laughs> so many do. Um, Paul, I just want to kind of move the, the, the story along. Uh, tell us about, <clears throat> I mean, C-Link procurement software for construction SMEs. Like what mm-hmm. are the big challenges facing you as a, you know, you, you and your partner have decided to kind of establish the business. Like what, what are the big challenges that you're facing as a business owner at the moment? In this um scaling probably is, is is the thing i mean we're a tech business so the tech scales nicely as you can imagine um but as i said the business is two parts the second part being the supply chain so we're trying to scale the supply chain build a robust quality supply chain as well we're not trying to be the yellow pages if you like we don't want to be google and be a big long list of everyone we wouldn't mind google's revenues to be honest with you but we don't really yeah, we don't want to be a big long list of every contractor. We're trying to be a curated list of quality contractors, which is one of our USPs, but is also one of our challenges as a business in terms of scale because we have to go through a vetting process to have the good guys. But in doing so, it obviously takes time to do that. That's, that's one challenge um, among many others. We're really lucky and fortunate, actually, that um, in terms of the team that we've got, we're a team of 12 now. and. Um, Everyone that we is on the team at the moment is absolutely phenomenal, fully committed, really um, engaged. And uh, that is amazing. One, we're, we're trying to, again, scale the team up. So obviously recruitment then becomes a challenge, mm. which isn't easy for anyone. But um, yeah, scaling is probably the main thing. And tell me this, did you did you get a um, f- financial backing or are you bootstrapping? <clears throat> we bootstrapped for the first period. Uh, and then we've had some angel investment um, more recently, and we're planning probably a larger round of investment to support the scale uh, now that we've proven concept and, and much more, to be honest with you. But um, now that we've done that, we're looking for a larger round of investment in the next 12 months. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. The um, and, and tell me just from the point of view of, Okay, so your business is facing your own kind of challenges and growing and things like that. But what about the construction industry in general? I mean, the you've got the supply chain issues that we've talked about. You've now got the inflationary cost issues, and mm-hmm. you've also got the cost of living out there that is making, I think, general families that are kind of trying to afford rent and mortgages and things like that. Where do you see the next, are you kind of looking ahead and trying to read the tea leaves? Where do you see the economy going in the next year or two? I am no economist, uh, Gavin, far far from it. I mean, it's a funny one because construction, the UK has a housing crisis, not dissimilar to the one in, obviously different, but not dissimilar to the one you're describing, Ireland, where we're short a few million houses, basically, and we're trying to deliver 350,000 houses a year. We never deliver it. It gets worse and worse each year. So clearly there is demand for construction. So the long-term picture is a relatively rosy one. Um, But, you know, it it does look very much like 
a recession or some kind of economic hit if it hasn't already started is is not too far away um and when that happens construction is the first thing to take a hit it's the first thing to take a hit so um we are mindful that it's quite likely that a recession and therefore some challenge to the wider industry is on the cards whether that impacts us directly um, i'm sure it will but whether it's a bad thing for business or a good thing for business i'm not 100 sure because it might actually again focus energy into competitive tendering for the subcontractors they will be more interested in finding work so it's a bit of an unusual one for us where perhaps a recession um isn't a complete disaster for us as a business yeah i was thinking that exactly and and we face the same challenges you're talking about every year ireland obviously is a much much smaller economy size but we we tried we need to build 50,000 houses a year just to meet the demand of the growing population you hit that target each no year. we 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 are delivering currently about 20 to 30,000 a year okay and so i mean at one stage if you go back to 2007 we were doing 90,000 a year when um, it was party time when it was party time and also we had <laughs> we had that the you know the entire country was filled with you know foreign um you know, laborers and and all mm-hmm. this and, and a lot of irish businesses and labor and stuff and when the 2008 recession hit and it went on for so many years it went on for like five or six years and at the end of that five or six years like it was decimated there was only maybe 10 percent of the labor force left in the country mm-hmm. so you're not able to restart at the same level because just everyone has, has moved and, and yeah. lives in, in another country now you know so huge numbers of people moved to the to the us to this to the australia and and mm-hmm. and you know you meet people and you start families and you, you get into the kind of routine of my kids go to school there now so we're not going to move now you know and so yeah. It's very difficult to kind of get it back. And at one stage, we were at 8,000 houses a year, and then it's, it's crept up now to something like 25 or 26,000. But we're still about 20, we're still about 50% shy of the figure we need to be at. And yeah. that being the case, just the acute shortage just gets worse and worse, you know, because exactly, yeah. 50,000 is what you need just to sort of reach equilibrium. So if you're short of that every year, it's just getting worse and worse. Worsening and, worse. and worsening. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar issues. And um, the, one of the things that I see as a big challenge um, uh, is sustainability and carbon emissions and all of this stuff. It's something that I'm paying quite a lot of attention to. I run a, a business park and we have office buildings that we're trying to, well, we have tenants in a lot of them, but some of them have become vacant in recent times and we're in the process of, using contractors to kind of get us up to, you know, bring us up to a certain level of sustainability. Whereas older office buildings, you know, the last generation or previous even to that, um, they're very dated buildings and they're not efficient energy wise. And there's a lot of carbon emissions and stuff. That all has to change. Um, And the problem that we're seeing is that as, as it goes, as time moves forward, it's getting even, you can actually see the writing on the wall that, even things like demolition will be difficult to do in the future because all of that construction that's sitting there already, the old embodied carbon, isn't it? There's, yeah, yeah, there's that embodied carbon, and it's like, well, if you can't take it down, what can you do with it? You know, and uh, and so it's reusing existing structure and all of that, and it's becoming more and more complicated. 
Do you see that uh, any kind of early signs of that yourself or? I, I mean, we, we do actually, when I'm meeting interesting people myself on our podcast, you know, it's obviously a hot topic and something we talk about, but, you know, I'm actually quite hopeful about that, particularly with, uh, architects like yourselves like people who can you know almost reimagine how we use stock because <clears throat> the way we've been building is pretty when you reflect on it um it's pretty crazy really the way we've been building where you put you throw some throw something up knock it down 30 years later throw something up knock it down 30 years later and i think there's got to be a change i think change is coming and I think the forward momentum is there and I think there's an, enough really intelligent, clever people and businesses working, working towards that. Um, but embodied carbon and all of those things, they're all, it's, it's funny. I mean, we're at the cutting edge to some degree because we're a con tech business. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking to lots of interesting people on the podcast, but that's still only really a um, phrase that came to my recognition eight ten weeks ago so wow. it's not contact is not, new yeah, yeah it's interesting yeah, so it's, it's i mean embodied carbon i didn't really it, it's not something that was in my vision if you know what i mean so yeah um i think people are adapting and i'm confident that we will change and i just i'm no i'm no designer i'm, I'm not creative in that way but i do think that we'd have to imagine a different way of using building buildings in an intelligent way to yeah. be more sustainable I've seen just as a kind of a, a, an insight into some of the conversations that I've had. So we have a lot of multinational tenants in our office buildings here. And one of them is a, is kind of a, an Irish, it's a, it's an, it's a state or partly, partly state owned business. And um, they are highly focused on their sustainability, their, you know, their carbon footprint and all this. And we were having a conversation and those guys are getting into real you know um meticulous granular detail into how where is the emissions being made and so we were talking about they have little kitchenettes on each floor of their building and they at night there was a there was a little power spike every 30 minutes and they were like what is that like and they were actually reviewing their their building information management system and they could see that there was this blip of power usage and they were like so they were going down, they were looking and they explored and they found that these kitchenettes have the little water heaters. And of course, yeah. the water heater doesn't know that everyone has gone home for the day and it just keeps on clicking on to boil the water every 30 minutes or whatever. Oh, really? And they, and they realized, ah, there you go. There's where the culprit is. So they put in just a, a timer switch so that the thing turns on at eight in the morning and turns off at sort of six or whatever. And that's the kind of level of detail that these guys are starting to look at. And so mm. from that, you can see, I mean, the other thing you've got contact, but prop tech is the area that I kind of hear a lot yeah. about and the whole building, the BIM and the building information and digital uh, twins. And I, I saw that your recent podcast, you had somebody talking about the digital twins and stuff. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. That was. It, it really is. And, and, and where I can really see the benefits of all that kind of stuff is that you know, we're looking at a building now at the moment that has just become vacant and we're, we're questioning our design team, like, what can we do to it? What if we replace all of the, the light bulbs? Because it's an older building, like replace all the light bulbs with LED. Like, what will that do in terms of emissions? Yeah. And what if we rip out the, the boiler plant and put in an electrical <clears throat> powered boiler? And what if we, you know, take out all the air conditioning systems and put in brand new ones that are efficient mm -hmm. and run on electricity? And, so, and 
The problem is, is they have to go off and do all these calculations. Whereas with a yeah. digital twin, it's just click, 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 and it's done, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's really yeah, no, the, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. The digital twin is really, is really something again, really interesting conversation I had a few months ago, where it just makes you think the way we've been doing it is so uh, backward almost when we've got all these technologies, why not have a exact digital twin of a building that you can then replicate, but turning to your point about, uh, sustainability i guess with corporate clients the thing being now if they're coming into this business part they will want to know specifically what your output is what their carbon emissions will be using that so again you know i feel like at the beginning of my career going back to late so 2007 2010 that period of time when i started sustainability was a thing but particularly in construction it felt very much like you know tokenistic lip service like yeah yeah we'll we'll do it even at the top the clients would say we need to be doing something but it wasn't inherently deeply in our mindsets whereas now not only is it for clients but it is very much in the mindset of the sector and the clever people who are trying to change how how we build so i'm optimistic about it Yeah, I would say so. I mean, definitely the mood has changed and this whole, I mean, what's really changed is the attitude towards greenwashing. And, you know, people people before would sort of say, oh, look, let's just, you know, put a thing on like, you know, showing a recycled symbol or, you know, you know, a little green plant or a leaf or something. And that's enough. And it's actually reputationally more damaging to be seen to be greenwashing than it is not to be environmentally conscious. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. That, that you're actually abusing the system is worse than just not being aware and being kind of ignorant of it. But both, yeah. both options, like being ignorant or greenwashing, could signal like real reputational damage. And so people are starting mm. to wake up to this. We have a tenant that went after a uh, bid for a, a project recently and they, they thought they were going to win it and they ended up losing it because they didn't have an electric car fleet. And right. suddenly they were like, what? You know, and we've been hearing all about it because they want to know how many electric car charging stations is there and, and things mm. like that. But it's really starting to filter in. Whereas before you would, you know, we were being asked these questions and it was kind of like just a throwaway question, but now it's actually directly impacting their viability yeah. and, uh, and things like that. So, it is very interesting. Tell us, um, Paul, in terms of st- establishing your podcast, I mean, I know I, when I set up this podcast, it was kind of a, a lockdown project. I didn't actually, <laughs> you know, I didn't really know what was the point. But in terms of your, you know, clearly you're reaching out there into the industry and you're, you're finding interesting conversations with people. What has establishing your podcast, what has that done for your business? Good question. Well. We kind of started it in uh, January 2021, which it's hard. All these lockdowns kind of like merge into one now. But it was, I think, when we're in deepest, the first lockdown was kind of charming to some degree by the fact that it was novel. Yes. Here in the the UK, we went into a lockdown over Christmas, effectively. I remember. Yeah, I remember. Like December the 15th through to February the 15th. It was brutal and it's so dark here. And... We started it in January 2021. If you, no one should go and do this, but the first uh, podcast that we recorded, we would do video as well. My hair, my my missus, 
was cutting my hair. My hair is an absolute state. So what it has done for my business is it's completely ruined my reputation because my hair was awful in those first first videos. <laughs> but um, all jokes aside, we so we've been going as a business for five six years now, and when we started. Um, what I was very focused on in terms of how we outwardly market was knowledge sharing in construction. We're a fragmented industry where nobody really wants to help each other. It's all look out for yourself. And it's, it's a really confusing jargon filled industry as well. So kind of when I first ever started as a trainee quantity surveyor, I was creating my own glossary of terms and trying to keep up with whatever everyone was saying in the office. And so that kind of was how we, went out with marketing initially so we did a lot of blogging lots of newsletters ebooks templates where it was effectively just trying to share knowledge mm. and that worked really well for us in the first few years and we wanted to convert the written format the success we had with writing into audio and videos so we set up a new podcast in 2021 what it's done for the business is hard in some ways to define i think you know i was actually talking to someone about this the other day in that you know, a typical marketing campaign, you say, I'm going to reach out to these 100 people, 10 of them will respond, three of them will buy my product. There's my ROI. Whereas with a podcast, you don't really, I'm sure you know this, who the hell is listening right now? Um, And to that degree, you're kind of throwing yourself out into the ether and seeing what comes back and stuff does come back. I'm forever surprised by bumping into people or meeting people or them calling me or me calling them and them saying, oh yeah, listen to your podcast. You think, okay, fine. It's just, which is heartwarming. And so what, what it's really done is um, two things. It gives you a uh, bit of a persona, if you like, and, and makes people feel like they know you, which then when you're meeting them, networking, trying no to sell. Like and trust. Yeah. The no yeah like and it's, trust. it's almost like you've, you've kind of solved that problem to start with. Um, and then we interview once a week really interesting people from construction, usually people with amazing careers. So we've interviewed like the president of the Institute of Civil Engineers, pe- people of that stature, really interesting people. And I am not someone who particularly enjoys networking. It's not something I particularly love doing. Um, but what I've found personally, if you like, with the podcast is that it's put me in a circle of people that otherwise I wouldn't necessarily be able to connect with or speak with. And you speak to these really interesting people and you actually instantly have a bit of a relationship with them, having sat as we're doing now and chatted for half an hour, 40 minutes or an hour, one on one, which is very hard to achieve. So that has been really powerful, I've found uh, for my networking, if you like. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. And one of the things that I really, that I get an awful lot of uh, satisfaction from is when I get messages from listeners saying, I really loved that episode or that helped me. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? It, it just makes you kind of, Poof, you know, I'm going to go and double down now and make, yeah, make yeah. even more. It of is effort. worth speaking to people like Paul Hemming after all. If you grind <laughs> through it, it might be all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us, Paul, in terms of, you know, the success you've you've enjoyed to date, I mean, what would you say the, the, the behaviors and, you know, the the habits that you've installed just in day-to-day kind of life? What, what, stand, what does anything stand out as being particularly helpful or, you know, has helped you kind of navigate your way through the struggles? Well, 
there's still many struggles. I can I can very much assure you of that. And um, but I can plenty. assure you they won't go away. Struggles are there. For... Yeah, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm going to be 50 this year, and uh, and I, I can tell you that it doesn't get any easier <laughs> as you get older. Yeah. Well, I'm not looking forward to that because I was hoping they were going to go away at some point. But um, for, for for me, it's always just been about. Um, being really good to the people around you, your team. I know that might sound really cheesy or simple, but they're the people that are working for your goal as a, as a business owner. So I've always been, tried my best um, to create an environment where they're happy, content and understand what we're trying to achieve. And then just personally, I'm just try to be really consistent with my week if, if that makes sense so like time that you're getting up what you're doing what you're trying to achieve and that's about it really i just tried to do that and i've got it far from cracked i can assure you Kevin, uh, i'm not sure if anyone should really take that on board <laughs> well no i i, I gotta say I, I straight away i relate to um consistency i mean i have a couple of core values that i kind of believe in and, and one of them is consistency it's just you know whether that's showing up every day to work out, whether it's mm. in the way you hit your social media. I mean, I've done, this is going to, this episode that we're recording now is going to be episode 116. That's 116 wow. weeks consistently without missing a single That's amazing. Week. Yeah. Yeah. I have to uh, say for, I, I think that's exactly what a podcast should be as well. You know, you're, you're, you, you strive to get an audience and they want to know that Monday at eight o'clock or whenever, I can listen to that if I want to. So I, I think consistency and the podcast is a really good way of seeing it. And kudos for hundred plus. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, 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 it, what's interesting about it is when I started out, I, I spoke to a friend who, who has a successful podcast and he said that something like 70% of the podcasts that are on the internet don't get beyond three episodes or five episodes or something like yeah. that. And, and I, and he said, like, if you can get to 10 episodes, he says you're in the top 30. Like, <laughs> and I remember <laughs> thinking like, Whoa, that's interesting. And, uh, and then I, you know, there's some of the big ones like Tim Ferriss and people like that, you kind of just see what they've grown into. And it's, yeah, it's staggering. Crazy, isn't it? like, it's yeah. staggering. And um, Paul, I'm conscious of time. Just, I usually ask my, my, my guests, a final couple of questions. And one of them is, Knowing now what you know at the ripe old age of 33, what advice would you give, say, 17-year-old Paul uh, who's coming out of school and, and you're kind of thinking, okay, what are the mistakes that I made that I could sidestep if I had a, if I had a second chance? Oh, that's a tough question because I've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I would actually probably say... Um, do not get too hung up on not being a journalist that because I reflect now on that. And I was absolutely adamant and desperate to be a written journalist. And um, if I look back now and think of, would I want to be doing that now? A absolutely not. But that's probably like counterproductive to what most people would think, but I reflect on what I was desperate to be and actually think I now wouldn't want to be that, but um, it's hard to tell yourself that as a, young teenager isn't it it is and you know what's interesting though what what immediately strikes me about that ambition is that having a podcast is a step towards being a journalist like you are putting yourself out there asking questions it is essentially what a journalist does and uh, obviously it's not in the written form but you have kind of 
in a sense, ticked that box. Somehow got back to it. Yeah, that's probably why. That's funny, isn't it? It's probably why doing the podcast is the bit that I enjoy most of my weekly uh, schedule. So there you go. Yeah. There you go. I am being a journalist. <laughs> I'll, I'll take <laughs> so that. You managed to get back to it. Um, Paul, if, if people wanted to learn more about your podcast or your business or anything like that, what are the links that they can go and check out? Um, so the website is C, as in the letter, hyphen link. Dot com so the business is called c-link um you can check out the business there if you're interested own the build is the name of my podcast um and it's on apple spotify all the usual places and yeah if you want to get in touch um feel free to to do that emails at paul at c-link.com i look forward to hearing from anyone and i'm sure linkedin will feature somewhere in your social media given twenty-one thousand followers it is in there yes it is in there paul it's been great chatting to you i uh, really appreciate your time and uh wishing you the very best of luck with your business and podcast thanks gavin it's been a real pleasure to be here and you're a fantastic host i've really enjoyed it mate Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paul Hemming today. Please do check out the show notes down below. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to leave a review over on uh, iTunes, wherever it might be. And also, if you're looking at this on YouTube, maybe hit the like button and subscribe to the channel. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, connect with me via the Facebook group that is Behind the Facade Community. And when you're in there, you can go and connect with me directly. Alternatively, you can reach out to me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. And you can also follow a lot of my latest updates and stuff by joining the email list and my tribe over at GavinJGallagher.com. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Catch you all same time next week.